0: From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. Our guest today is Denise Diani from Boston's GBH, the senior executive in charge of Mysteries of Mental Illness, a multi-platform project which sets out to explore the story of mental illness in science and society.
1: What is abnormal? What's normal behavior? What's illness?
0: It turns out that in psychiatry, the boundary
2: is very fluid. Societies decide the lines of deviance. I didn't think mental illness was something that happened to normal people. Over 130 firefighter paramedics died by suicide last year. Do you see things that are hard to forget? We would call it trauma. We would call it PTSD.
0: Denise, welcome to WNET Up Next.
1: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, and this is one of my most favorite projects to talk about, so I appreciate having this opportunity.
0: Now, of course, the subject of mental illness is certainly one of the most important and least understood areas in all of our lives. And I think particularly in this past year, as we've been confronting the pandemic and the fight for social justice, Mysteries of Mental Illness, fascinating and timely project. How did it all get started?
1: Well, like so many of these very in-depth PBS documentary series, it's been a while since we had the original idea and went through the process of actually launching the production about a year ago or so. This series was inspired by a number of works and one in particular called Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry by Jeffrey Lieberman. And that is a book that really looked at psychiatry through the lens of history. So we learned about that book and we consulted with Jeffrey and then our producers, Pan Gloss Films, began an intensive almost two year process of delving into this from a research point of view. It also takes some time once you understand what the series is about to do all the fundraising. So we were all really good to go with this project about 18 months ago. And then guess what happened? Mm. The global pandemic. So as you point out, Tom, we felt Mysteries of Mental Illness was a tremendously important series and content area to delve into. And then when the pandemic happened, and then when structural racism became so forefront for all of us in this country, so much of what we're reporting on really shifted a bit. That that was both important, it made the series all the more relevant, but also challenging. Challenging from a content point of view, because we don't want to do a series that doesn't address how these two dual crises are having an impact on mental health. But also because creating a documentary series in the midst of a pandemic is fairly challenging.
0: Yes, I need to know more about that too. Let me ask you first, though, what do you feel is the overarching goal of the series?
1: There is a central goal, which is to fight stigma. So we believe Mm. that knowledge is power. We believe the role of journalism and documentary filmmaking is to shed light on critical issues in people's lives and our viewers' and users' lives. So there are many goals in the series, understand mental illness better in terms of being a ubiquitous, pervasive reality that, depending on who you talk to, one out of two people will face at some point in their life. But also with that understanding to lead to a diminishing of the stigma around mental illness. You know, we say a lot, we talk about our content research into mental illness and mental health that if you are diagnosed with heart disease or diabetes, while that's unfortunate, you don't typically feel a sense of shame or that much a sense of responsibility. But should one be diagnosed with schizophrenia or OCD or intractable depression, often that comes with a sense of shame and stigma.
0: This stuff is held in and people try to hide What's
1: going no, that's on. exactly right. And I think the other thing about mental illness that's so important to talk about, and again, to shed light on is, I would say we probably could name a dozen friends and family members who have suffered or are struggling with mental illness. And Absolutely. yet it isn't usually brought up, and it's often not discussed. And what we're trying to do is to say this is an illness like any other. And there are treatments and modalities that can address it and sometimes even cure it. But we first have to give people the permission and the support to acknowledge it in their own lives or in their lives of their friends and families.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the broadcast series itself. I know that it's a four-hour documentary presented over two consecutive nights on PBS, June 22nd and 23rd. And I was hoping you could share with us a little about each of the four episodes.
1: So the approach the entire four hours is to use the lens of the history of science to look at how attitudes are evolving. And the filmmakers do go back you know, a whole way 2,000 years to start the story in ancient Greece when people are trying to understand why there are things such as hallucinations or behaviors that seem mysterious or a little off kilter. But we also look at contemporary stories of individuals who are on the front lines of mental health and mental illness and being very authentic and quite revealing about their own journey. Our one is called Evil or Illness, introduces our viewers and users to characters who might have been seen as a witch three or 400 years ago. And now one young woman in particular, Cecilia, is seen as someone who has schizophrenia, but she has delusions and hallucinations. And she herself discussed as a actually quite successful young woman who's managing her schizophrenia. She talks about that she would have been perhaps seen as a witch 300 years ago, had she been born at a different time. We have another young woman in that episode, Ginny, who has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and is an Olympic-trained athlete who's incredibly successful, but manages a significant disease load and is very active and trying different treatments and therapeutic interventions to make sure she manages her disease rather than her disease managing her.
2: I dedicated everything to boxing. I won the Olympic trials for 2021 Olympics. And now I'm in the top three in the world. So getting the gold is definitely doable. I'm like, wow, Jenny, you can spar eight rounds, go hit the bag six rounds and go do a 30 minute run. And that's easy to me, but I can't clean a countertop and wash my hands in 10 minutes. There's no way I would be able to do that in 10 minutes. That would take me like two hours. There's always a constant battle in my head like, Jenny, let's stop, but I can't stop. Even though I want to so bad blows my mind almost. I don't understand why I can't, and that's what I'm still trying to figure out.
1: Even with their illnesses, in both cases fairly severe mental health issues, they're living full and interesting and successful lives. And We think this is incredibly important to helping our viewers and audiences understand that stigma around mental illness is very misplaced. And the more we take mental illness out of the shadows and shed light, the more we normalize it and the more people then feel empowered, if you will, to seek the treatments or the therapeutic interventions that are going to give them fullest access to their own successful lives.
0: This leads right to the title of the, the second hour, which is Who's Normal? What a question.
1: We love the title, and we've gone through a number of different titles. as what's normal, and are you normal, and who's normal. And what the title is meant to capture is the idea that for the longest part of recorded history, there are sick people mm. and healthy people. And that isn't really true from a mental health perspective. We are all on the spectrum somewhere, But, you know, we're really talking in Hour 2 about the end of the binary. You're not necessarily sick Mm -hmm. or healthy, mentally ill or mentally healthy. We're all on a spectrum. And what's so, I think, interesting about Hour 2, Who's Normal, is the idea that they really embed ideas of what's normal and what's not in the social context. And one of the characters you meet, a woman named Maya, who was a cisgendered man at birth and who transitioned in her later years as a middle-aged person, she transitioned and the idea that she was seen as sick. And now, of course, as we become more sophisticated about gender issues and body dysmorphia, we understand that she's just on a spectrum of human behavior and human identity the other story that's relevant and related to my story is the idea that up until fairly recently homosexuality was seen as a mental health issue now of course we understand that it is not a mental health issue homosexuality is not a mental illness but it was seen as such through middle of the last century there were therapies to try to get rid of homosexuality it was considered by practitioners up until the 60s as a mental illness that needed to be confronted. So Who's Normal really talks about how culture and society determine what we see as mental health and mental illness and how fluid and flexible those designations are. And I think since we used to think homosexuality was not part of normal or mental health, what mistake might might we be making today in 2021? And how to remove stigma from all of those classifications to really understand that, you know, we're all on a spectrum of one kind or another. And to really embrace the diversity of people, humanity, is to really accept that there's enormous diversity within people's attitudes, personalities, and expression of mental health.
0: It ultimately sounds very freeing and liberating to know this and accept this.
1: That's the intentionality, Kenya. We started by saying what the main goal was. The main goal of the series is to lessen stigma about mental illness and to help people understand how culturally bound or societally influenced definitions of mental illness are, I think will be very liberating.
0: I grew up in an area where it was referred that someone was going to Utica, I grew up in upstate New York and going to Utica was code for being admitted to an asylum. But the idea of the asylum in your third hour, that's part of the focus.
1: Indeed, the third hour is called Rise and Fall of the Asylum, ideas about what an asylum was. The notion of asylum, it was a place to be cured. The reason he was admitted was worry.
0: There are a lot of experimental therapies that now strike us as quite bizarre, even sadistic. Sterilization without consent.
1: The mentally ill were not really deinstitutionalized. The third hour, like hour one and two, gives a historical frame, goes all the way back to the rise of the asylum in the 1700s and 1800s and famous asylums like Bedlam in the United Kingdom. And what they were seen to be, they had started with very much of a pro-patient health idea to go to the sanitarium or the asylum to be well-treated, but very quickly that that approach deteriorated and they became, for many years, holding places, places where people were not given true therapeutic interventions where they were housed, sometimes housed for their entire lives, and too often experimented on in terms of what modalities, what treatments could actually have an impact on their perceived or real mental illness. The most famous example of that, of course, is the very, very famous scene from the movie One Flower is the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. That character who gets electric shock treatment, then ultimately lobotomy, And it was seen as a very punitive, controlling bad behavior. Ideas about asylums played into the idea of only very ill people went into some of these facilities. And for a series of reasons, a lot of things that were going on in the United States, asylums became much less common. There was a huge movement to deinstitutionalize people who had been patients within mental health asylums and that was in large part because the practitioners and the professionals of the day felt that there were enough treatments that could if you will if not cure some of these mental illnesses at least manage mental illnesses more effectively in the 50s 60s and 70s people were increasingly deinstitutionalized and what happened then, and this is the contemporary story in hour three, is today in the United States, Cook County Jail in Chicago is the biggest facility for housing people who have a mental health diagnosis. And we have unfortunately left our prisons and our jails to be the last stop for many people who do have a mental health diagnosis because there aren't a lot of other treatment options.
0: This is not where law enforcement can meet the need of mental health.
1: I think because there are so many factors that limit who gets access to treatments and what kind of treatments are available for some people, and we have a character within our three, a fellow named Jeremiah who's been institutionalized or jailed 19 times, for someone like Jeremiah he gets better access to health care, mental health care, when he's in prison than not. Oh, interesting. And that has to do with unequal access to health insurance in America. It has to do to some of the stigma we talked about. It has to do to some of the inconsistency in treatment options. So it's actually a very poignant and I would say tragic story to see how our prisons and jails have become are de facto treatment centers for too many people.
0: Well, let's turn to the fourth episode, which is called The New Frontiers. Yeah. And hopefully this will have some more positive ideas for dealing with mental illness.
1: It does. And because, as I said, that the whole four-part series looks at mental illness through this historical frame, the history of science, our four does take you into 2021 very cutting edge therapies, some of which really resonate with some of the therapies that were tried 100 or 200 years ago. But now with more research, with the rise of neuroscience and much greater understanding about brain and brain science, some of the treatments that were tried and abandoned 100 years ago are now being tried in a much more sophisticated, forward-looking and successful way.
0: The neurosurgeon is going to implant two electrodes in my brain.
1: People might say it's a little creepy that we're gonna actually manipulate someone's brain, but these are very ill patients. I'm so desperate at this point.
0: ECT is by far the most effective treatment in psychiatry.
2: It's critically important to give people
1: a choice.
0: Surgery, it's a gamble. This is the final frontier in psychiatry.
1: One of the stories we tell is a very poignant and sad story about Matthew, who confronts very serious obsessive-compulsive disorder. And he's tried every therapy available, and he makes a decision, which is a tough and challenging decision, to undergo deep brain stimulation surgery, which is a series of three different surgical procedures, which attach actual electrodes to his brain that he can control via a handheld device that he carries Mm. around with him. And through the careful calibration of these electrodes and modern electroconvulsive therapy, he gets enormous relief for his very disruptive and disorienting symptoms. So we see how we've come forward from the bad old days to today a sophisticated surgical procedure, obviously only used by people with extensive or extreme conditions. It's not for everyone, but Matthew is one of the first patients. There's only been 300 patients so far who've done this surgery. He's gotten enormously successful results, and he is on the vanguard. He and his surgeons and physicians as we understand how more and more people can benefit from the new contemporary deep brain stimulation surgery, the modern electroconvulsive therapy.
0: Another very important component, in addition to these four hours of these wonderful films, is going to be a series of digital video films. Now, these are going to be, I believe, distributed on PBS digital platforms as well as on the World Channel. And this is going to have a very specific focus Particularly, I think, in the fight for inclusion as it affects mental health. Could you reflect on that a bit?
1: Yes, you're exactly right. And you mentioned earlier the double crises of the pandemic and the forefronting of uh, structural racism when we were able to raise money to do a digital series, a 20-part digital series, I reached out to my colleague, Chris Hastings, who's executive director of the World Channel. So Chris Hastings commissioned a New York-based production company, Radda Films, to make this 20-part series. And together they came up with a really important framing for the digital short series, mm-hmm. which is, has, carries the same name as the broadcast series, Mysteries of Mental Illness, but with a really important subtitle, Decolonizing Mental Health. And that series focuses on the real barriers to access to treatment, the discrepancy, and how different communities are able to secure and get really good services and treatment, how differently different cultures and different communities see and define mental health, the role of stigma, the role of church, the role of community, and frankly, the role of racism Mm -hmm. and making it challenging for some individuals to seek or to feel comfortable with some services. And the other kind of brilliant thing about decolonizing mental health is that it profiles both patients, but also practitioners who are taking new avenues to reach communities of interest and concern and to offer culturally specific and culturally sensitive services and treatments? So, it's, I think, a very, very important companion to the broadcast series. And to your question, you know, it is going to be carried on the World Channel, the YouTube channel, and the website and PBS. So We're really excited about the work that Chris Hastings and Rada Films are doing. We don't take on any broadcast project any longer if it doesn't have with it social, digital, virtual events. And in the case of Mysteries of Mental Illness, we also have an educational component. So once the series and the digital series are completed and presented, then the educators at PBS Learning Media will begin to comb those materials to create curriculum-specific educational assets to try to bring some of these important stories and messages to middle and high school audiences.
0: Does the series make any discoveries that were particularly surprising to you? Did you have any misconceptions of your own about mental illness that somehow were cleared up by what you learned?
1: I will say what is surprising and really positive to me is the work that's being done in the New Frontier mm-hmm. show on psychedelics and the whole idea that psychedelics were being used very effectively in the 50s and 60s as treatments for some severe or significant mental illnesses. And because of this goes back to society and culture, because psychedelics then became so closely associated with the counterculture and the anti-war movement, you know, and the hippies, that there was a real freeze out and a lot of really important scientific investigation mm-hmm. into psychedelics stopped. And that was a political mm-hmm. rather than a scientific decision that that happened. So it's been exciting and to me new was the idea that the psychedelic research has continued that we do profile a woman who is using MDMA-assisted therapy. And for those who don't know, I didn't know, that MDMA is also called ecstasy Uh of molly, you know, the the party drug. And now it is extremely effectively being used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And while at this very moment it is an illegal substance, the FDA is about to approve it for these kinds of assisted therapies. So to your question, Tom, that was really surprising to me. I hadn't realized the politics in the 60s that stopped that important research. I hadn't realized that research was still going on, and I was surprised at how effective some of these small studies and experiments are. And I think we look forward to a day just around the corner where there are a whole new set of treatment modalities for people with intractable mental illnesses or mental challenges. And that's very, very exciting.
0: What actually led you into this world of public media?
1: I was a youngster and I was blown away by the science journalism that NOVA in the early days did. And I decided I wanted to work at NOVA. So I set my sights on NOVA. I was fortunate enough to get an entry-level job many years ago and worked at NOVA for a long time and really, really loved the quality of the science journalism, was proud to be working with them as a broadcast journalist and documentary maker, and learned from some of the best in the business about documentary making. And from there, I just have hopped around to a number of different departments within GBH, both local and national. And in the last few years, I've been running our R&D unit, which role is to develop limited series and specials that fall outside of the terrific work that our colleagues do in the so-called Five icon series. So we take on content that doesn't belong in frontline or know American experience. We look for content that's important to our audiences and important to PBS, given their genre and content focuses. And we do work that doesn't belong elsewhere than GBA.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Denise, let me ask you, what do you feel is the most satisfying aspect of your work?
1: I feel incredibly lucky every day to get to go to work and work with collaborative and creative teams. And I used to make my own films as a writer, producer, and director, and that was very satisfying as well. But even in those days, I understood that like so many creative pursuits, it's inherently collaborative. And while we have some very well-known auteurs, no one makes these films on their own. To get a good film means you have good relationships, good rapport, that you uh, embrace many, many, many different expertise and specialists who bring their best to the game and working with creative people and particularly increasingly working with younger makers and diverse makers, that's incredibly satisfying to me. And I feel really lucky to be surrounded by such talented and terrific makers.
0: When a young person comes to you with ideas about getting involved in filmmaking and production, what, what kind of advice do you offer
1: them? Hmm. One question that people always come to me with is, do I need to get a master's or an advanced degree in filmmaking? And what I say to that is, if you want to work in scripted Hollywood films, probably, because that's where you do a lot of networking, go to the West Coast, get a degree in network. If you want to make documentaries, do the work. Get an entry level job, intern, get a taste for it, make your own work. One of the really exciting things of our business today, you know, when I started, in order to make an independent short or documentary, you'd have to borrow incredibly expensive equipment. It was very cumbersome, it was expensive, it was hard to use. Now, basically, with an iPhone, you can go out and make a documentary, a digital short, and you can see if you really, really like the work. So I say, Intern, volunteer, get an entry-level job with a talented team, and or make your own work and see if it sticks.
0: That's great advice. Denise, where can our listeners go to learn more about what we've been talking about today? understand that on the PBS website, there will be a special Mysteries of Mental Illness area. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. And within that website, Tom, there's going to be a resource section And the research section will have short bios on the experts who appear in the film. It will have links to some of their writing. It will have information about organizations that provide mental health care. So I think that is the best place to go if you will one-stop shopping.
0: Denise, thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations on putting this project together and making such a great contribution to our understanding of mental illness.
1: It's a pleasure to chat with you. I feel very, very privileged to have worked on this project. I do want to nod to the people behind the scenes who are working hard on this. So Pan Gloss is the New York-based production company who took the lead on all this work. And the two leads there are producer, director, writer, Peter Yost and uh, producer and uh, writer and director, Edna Albuquerque. And I've already mentioned Chris Hastings, my close colleague and executive director of World Channel, who is kind of single-handedly kicking the Rada Film Digital Series into shape and bringing it to audiences. So Chris and Rada and Peter and Edna are really the talent behind all these activities. And I'm just lucky enough to get to work with all of these incredibly, incredibly creative and enthusiastic makers.
0: Well, great to acknowledge them. We'd also like to thank your colleague, Jeff Elias of GBH, for his great assistance getting this together today. And of course, thanks to our audio engineer, John Berman, our editor, Samantha Lobo, and our executive producer, Dana McBride. But you were going to say something.
1: No, I was going to say, it's a pleasure. Thank you all. I'll talk about the work we do anytime you ask me.
0: Excellent. We'll be knocking on your door.
1: Anytime. Well, best to all of you. Thank you for this opportunity.
0: And thank you for listening. Be with us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. And of course, you're welcome to share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org. And of course, do please become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design On Air Promotion and Fundraising Department of the WNET Group. I'm Tom Stewart.